lazo. Oh yeah. So this afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. We will, as we have done so often in the past, and in accordance with the general theme of Buddhism, go from coarse to subtle. And so the level or the dimension, not just one level, it's a whole dimension of suffering that we'll attend to this afternoon is now somewhat familiar to you. Blatant suffering, in-your-face suffering, it feels bad suffering, the suffering of suffering, I really don't like it, suffering. In the pain, that is in the body, pain in the body, and the whole range of dukkha in the mind, in body and mind, but in mind, restlessness, malaise, feeling ill at ease, to mind demolishing anguish, and the whole spectrum in between. That's dukkha, that we explicitly experience, no mystery about it. It's in our face, plain, obvious, evident. And the aspiration of compassion, of course, is we, may we be free. The whole, the, the whole Buddhist approach to suffering itself runs against the current of all of modernity. Of all of modernity. If we include in modernity that it's not just science, technology, materialism, Modernity also includes religion. I mean, we can like it or lump it, but a lot of modern people are religious. And when I say modernity, I'm really fo focusing in a very ethnocentric way, frankly, on the religions of the West, the Abrahamic religions. So Judaism, Christianity, Islam. So there's a group, a lot in common among the three. All go back to Abraham. All go back to God, if one is a believer. And then there's the fourth group, and that's the materialists which are not at all equivalent to scientists, about half of scientists in, today, in the United States today believe in God who responds to prayer, so you can't call them materialists. And many materialists are not, most materialists are not scientists, so they're not the same. But modern materialism is very much couched within the domain of science and, and the, in, the, in the minds of its advocates is, how do you say, validated by science, reinforced by science. And like religious fundamentalists everywhere, they love to think that if you don't agree with them, you're simply irrational. Materialists, that is, dogmatists all over the world think that. If you don't agree with me, you're just stupid, or ignorant, or illogical. But what these all have in common, these three Abrahamic religions, as they're manifesting in the modern world, bear in mind, each of these has gone through so many stages of evolution. The Christianity of the early Desert Fathers and the Christianity of some of these um, megachurches in the United States, one would have to say, mm, this is the same religion, you know, and well, there are points of contact, but certainly very different. But if we look at the Abrahamic religions in the West, in the modern world, and we look at another major, I would say, ersatz religion, scientific materialism, they all take fundamentally the same view of suffering. And that is, you're human, you're going to suffer. That's human nature. So compassion is a good thing. But don't even for a minute think that an alive human being is going to be free of suffering. We shouldn't be free of suffering. 
I heard this said by a very distinguished colleague just not, not long ago. Uh, we should suffer. Human beings are made to suffer. We will suffer. There's no way out of suffering. This is from a perspective of Darwinian biology, neo-Darwinianism. And that is, but it's normal and it's right and it's inevitable and it's unthinkable that a living, intelligent, healthy human being would not suffer because it's life. I mean, your mother dies. How can you not suffer? You're going to be subhuman if you don't suffer, if, you, if a loved one dies, and, if you, and let alone physical pain, and you suffer, and a tornado hits your, hits your town. If you're not suffering, then you're, there's something wrong with you. you know? So suffering is just part of human existence. So yeah, hope that people have less, but don't go overboard there. You know? We're made to suffer. And the Abrahamic religions in the modern world will say the same thing, that God sends us suffering. Uh, look at the Son of God in his final episode. Uh, no, not quite final. The final episode was quite exceptional. That is, when he was resurrected and came back in a uh, rainbow body. Um, but on the cross, I mean, this is what you'll see. I mean, I've traveled a lot around Europe and been to many, many churches for every image of the risen Christ, you'll find a thousand crucifixes. Really, a thousand, a thousand to one. It's like, this is why you need Jesus. You, can you see how he's suffering? He did this for you. you know. Whereas the Gnostic view of, of, of Christ, you can find it in the Gnostic Gospels and the Nagamadi, is he's on the, he's on the cross and he's laughing. Completely free of suffering. But then, if that's true, then the whole notion that he died in anguish to save you from your sins doesn't sell very well. Doesn't, doesn't have any rationality to that. But the commonality here is that for the scientific materialists, tracing back to Darwinian evolution as an explanation for the whole of human existence, which is, again, I think we're exactly where it goes wrong. It's a magnificent scientific theory to explain the adaptation and evolution of species is fantastic. But then when we try to make a religion out of it, this will explain all of human existence. Okay, we're back to blind faith again. Once again. And why, from that perspective, do we suffer? Well, to survive and procreate, what it really boils down to. If you don't suffer, if you don't suffer, you don't feel pain, then you're not going to survive. And... You, if you don't survive, you don't procreate. So it's built in. We've got to have it. It's necessary. That's why we biologically adapted to have suffering so that we would survive and procreate. And then in the Abrahamic view, we're fallen creatures. There's, there's a common denominator, the book of Genesis, common to the theme of it, of Adam, common to Islam, of course, Christianity, Judaism, that we're fallen. We're fallen. And if you're fallen, then you suffer. Eat the wrong fruit. Whatever it is, whatever caused it. But there is, in all four of them, there is redemption. There is release. There's salvation. There's liberation. In all four of them, equally. And it all comes after this life. Right? So for the Jews, after this life. And for some Jews, they don't believe in an afterlife. Well, no problem there. If there's no afterlife, you're free. No more suffering. The Christians, you devout Christian, good. You go to heaven, no more suffering. Muslims, same. And then there's the materialists. Of course, same. 
I was checking my notes, there was a real shift that took place in the mid-19th century. Specifically, it was catalyzed in 1854 with a very smart theologian philosopher named Ludwig. I just had the name, Feuerbach. Ludwig Feuerbach, German theologian philosopher. And he came up with the right idea that actually had enormous impact on the intelligentsia of Europe, including Marx, Engels, many other people. And that is that the Christian, Judeo-Christian notion of God was simply a rarefied, cleaned up, idealized version of your dad. (laughs) But a really good dad. Stern and all-powerful and all-knowing. But never doesn't have the human foibles. Arm, armpit hair, <laughs> bad breath, intestinal gas, diabetes, flatulence, overweight. You know, dads. <laughs> the dads, all the dads that we've ever met. You know, so clean out is almost like getting an extreme makeover. Take your dad, imagine the great, a really good dad, take out all of the limitations of being a human being, and then project it big on the cosmos, actually outside of the cosmos, and say, our father, who art elsewhere, and get to it. That caught on. It really, the time was ripe. It really caught on. It had a big ricochet effect, had a massive impact. That was 1854. In 1882, Nietzsche, in that same current, proclaimed the inevitable, if to the extent that the groundswell for this is building, that if after all, God is a human construct, an idealized, refined, rarefied, cleaned up human construct, projected upon the universe as the ultimate reality, then God is dead. 1882, the famous phrase, God is dead. That is, you just can't worship, you can't take refuge in, you can't offer prayers to, not from the heart. Something you're now persuaded is just a fiction. In other words, ultimate reality has become conventional reality. And who can make prayers to something that is just a manner of speaking that is a human convention, a human concoction? A fairy tale. God is dead. And when he, made, he proclaimed this, it was not with jubilation, it was with sadness. Like, if God is dead, nature and human beings abhor a void, abhor a vacuum. What's going to fill it? Because we need to rely on something. We need to plant our staff someplace and believe in something. Unless you're brain dead. Or so massively, or maybe you're starving to death. Then you don't need to believe in much, except for I'm really hungry, where's the food? So if we're really right down to subsistence level, then okay, then pretty much we're just trying to subsist. But as soon as we have a bit of leisure, and we're trying to even have the inkling of an inkling of making sense of our lives and leading a meaningful life, we have to believe in something. And God is dead. Can't believe in that anymore. If it's just a fiction we concocted in this kind of contrived way of idealized dad. So what came rushing in to fill the vacuum? Matter. Matter. What is ultimately real? 
That is, we're going to take God out of the equation, which is exactly what Darwin did, and Feuerbach did, and Nietzsche did, and 20th century science, to a large extent, as it appears in scientific journals. You just don't find references to God in articles on DNA, genetics, geology, and so forth. It's just not part of the picture, taken out of the equation, which, frankly, it should be. But if you take that out of the equation, then that's no longer the ultimate reality from which all of phenomenal reality springs. God being the source of reality, the ultimate source, the Father, the Creator. If you take that out, then what are you going to put back in? Because something is going to come back in. The human mind, the human spirit, abhors a vacuum. And so, of course, something does come back in, and it's matter. But it's not matter, familiar matter. I'll pick up my notorious iPhone. My iPhone is made of 100% matter energy. And I can feel it. it. It's rough. But the matter of the physicist, ultimate reality, is not rough. It's not, it's not rough. Mat atoms, molecules, they're not rough. Rough is subjective. It's rough, the feeling of rough is a subjective impression. That's relative truth. Subjective. Conventional. It only feels rough. It's not really rough. Ask any physicist. Are molecules and so forth rough? And they'll say, no, 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 no. That's a subjective. Oh, it's smooth, but it's smooth. Oh, that's, that's not smooth. Matter is not smooth. It's warm. No, 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 no. Matter is not warm. It's kind of heavy. No, no, that's just a sensation. That's a sensation. Matter has mass, but that's not the same as weight. And it's not the same as the sensation of something lying in your hand. Well, what's the nature of matter? It's not, in other words, it's not familiar matter. This, this, uh, an iPhone is familiar. Uh, it's a very neutral taste. Matter doesn't have any taste. Matter has no taste. This does. Tastes like me. <laughs> it makes sound, ah, and it comes alive. Um, it has color. Matter has no color. Matter has no color, no, it's, it's no images, no color, doesn't make any noise. Not, it's matter as you've never seen it, and as you never will see it. Because matter is matter absolutely objectively. From what perspective? Since it's not my perspective, it's not a bat's perspective, it's not any human perspective. From what perspective? Who's got the correct perspective? Because I obviously don't. I'm looking at matter, and it's got color, and it's warm, and it's fuzzy, and it's rough, and it's smooth, and it feels heavy, and it doesn't have much of a scent, but it could. And matter doesn't have any of those qualities. So who's got the skivvy? Who's got the correct view? Who sees matter as it is? Who's seeing, who's seeing ultimate reality correctly? Because I obviously don't. Every time I look at any matter, whether it's an iPhone or a kneecap or a cloud, any matter at all, I'm, I'm just seeing a whole bunch of stuff that are attributes that are not attributes of matter. So I'm living my own little anthropocentric world here, and matter, I'm not getting it. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not seeing matter as it is. I should probably go to a priest. Who can tell me what matter really looks like? Who's got a, a correct view of matter? And of course, we knew the answer in the 18th century. 
Any guesses? God. They were all Christian. The 17th century, the 18th century, the 16th century, they're all, they're, they're all Christian. Descartes, Galileo, all of these people came up with this notion of matter absolutely objective, devoid of secondary properties, devoid of any subjective qualities, having only absolutely objective qualities. Seen from what perspective? An absolutely objective perspective. Which perspective is that? The perspective of the man who made the whole thing. God. Matter as it truly exists, out there objectively, inherently, absolutely, really out there, independent of all measurements of all conceptual frameworks. That's real matter. Who sees it? God. Except for God doesn't exist. So who sees it? Nobody. If God doesn't see it from an absolute perspective, nobody sees it. So God, and matter has now taken the role of non-contemplative Christianity in the sense that matter is something that nobody perceives, but we all believe in it. And in non-contemplative Christianity, God is something we all believe in, but nobody knows him. Nobody perceives him. Matter has taken over the role of God. And we look to matter to solve all, our prob all, of, of all, all of our problems. We just need to manipulate it, fix it, fix it, fix it. But all our problems are rooted in configurations of matter, so we just need to reconfigure matter. But the good news is that even though we're made to suffer, and we come back to this central theme, we're biologically evolved, genetic mutations, adaptation, complexity, neuronal configurations, all designed to make us suffer for our whole lives, and we just try to make it a bit less. The good news is, when you go brain dead, your suffering days are over. Just like in Christianity. There is an end of suffering in the after death. So I was thinking if a, a neuroscientist were to perform a last rites ceremony for a materialist, it could be very short. To the dying person. <laughs> You can see what comes out of my substrate. It's a bit weird on occasion. <laughs> but <laughs> so imagine I'm the neuroscientist, and dear, dear Carissa is the dying materialist. And I would come over to her as she's breathing her last breath, and I would say, Carissa, what's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> and she would say, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> so I really think there are four Abrahamic religions. The old three, and then the modern one, they have so much in common. They're all such true believers in that which they can't see. And one little problem aside, materialism is absolutely rooted in 19th century physics. And so they're worshiping a dinosaur. Because that matter that exists out there in and of itself, absolute, real, with its own characteristics, independent of observation and so forth, I think there's hardly a quantum physicist alive who believes in that anymore. It's antiquated. It's a dinosaur. But unfortunately, people in the mind sciences don't study quantum mechanics. It's not part of their undergraduate or graduate education. 
So again, they're resting so much, vast majority on 19th century physics, 19th century metaphysics, and the brilliant cutting edge theorizing and experimentation by people like Anton Seilinger, John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking. Just, it's another department. That's one of the great weaknesses of our magnificent modern university system is departments don't talk to each other, not much. And so what's going on in theoretical physics, people in the neuroscience, they may as well be on a different planet. It's too bad, because the physics they bring to their neuroscience labs is 19th century physics. So what we know from the breakthroughs, and they're both experimental as well as theoretical of contemporary physics, is that what we really know is information. Information is primary, and we get this from multiple brilliant, cutting-edge, experimental, and theoretical physicists. The latest coming out from Stephen Hawking in his most recent book, what is most fundamental is information. And out of information, out of the measurements that we take through any system of measurement you like, we get information. Often it's digitized, it's numbers, or it's a computer-generated image, what have you. Out of that, we concoct the category matter as it exists really out there. But it's matter cleaned up with no body hair, no intestinal gas, no human qualities, no sensory qualities of human color, smell, taste, feel, warmth, texture. It's dead, purified of all anthropocentric subjective qualities. Matter is dead. It always was, but now it's deader than a doornail. Because when you see that it's a fiction, then you can't believe it in anymore. You can't take refuge in it anymore. It's a fiction. Matter existing in and of itself as, oh, by the way, as we conceive it. As if our minds were cannons catapulting a shell of matter out into the universe and say, okay, hang in there on your own. I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. Matter is a mind fart. It's <laughs> one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, that needs to be translated. <laughs> so, what does this have to do with suffering? Insofar as we still are embedding ourselves in the old framework, Everything just boils down to matter, and all of our suffering is coming from outside. Outside means our own brains. That's outside. When I look inside, I don't see a brain. The only time I ever see my brain is when Richard Davidson showed me a brain scan of my brain and assured me I had one. That's, that's all I know of my brain. I mean, Richard Davidson scanned me once, and I thought, oh. It didn't look very interesting. It kind of looked like every other brain I've seen. But at least I got one. That was good. That, that was good news. So that's outside, and the body's outside. Other people, the environment, everything is outside. And why I suffer is because of stuff outside. Now, the suffering experience seems to be really inside, but we attribute all the causes of suffering to everything outside. Body chemistry, DNA, genetics, time I spent in my mother's womb, the environment, upbringing, and so forth and so on, it's all outside. And so when the suffering experience internally gets too strong, the first impulse is give me an anesthetic. 
Because number one, you've given me no hope that there's any freedom from suffering until I die. And I don't quite believe in this enough to commit suicide. And so I'm sitting on the fence here. I'm not a true believer. Right. So give me an anesthetic. And this is the first line of this is the first line. I feel bad physically. Give me something quick. Make it snappy and make the pain go away. And then we feel bad mentally. Same deal. Same deal. All psychological distress is a brain disorder. Said in the New York Times a couple of months ago. All psychological problems are brain disorders. Good, give me something to fix it. What chemical do I need? Electrical stimulation? Want to take part of my brain out? Good, take the bad part out. You know, it's all outside. The suffering seems to be really intimate, up close and personal, very much inside. And then we're looking for solutions. Take it away. Give me something outside. And when it gets really strong, then just drown me with something more intense, greater amplitude from outside. Make the music louder. I definitely need a better sound system. Surround sound and give me big amps, because I want it to boom so loudly that I will not be able to hear my own suffering. I want it to overwhelm me. And I can't be entertained all the time. Good, that's what work is for. And I will work 40, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, anything necessary to drown out the noise, to get my mind off. I'm so busy. Hallelujah. Otherwise, I might have to have the leisure of experiencing the pain I'm carrying around with me all the time. And I don't think I could bear that. So I think it's time to be productive. Where are the crossword puzzles? So Rinpoche, I think, was saying, one, one very well-known lama said, you Westerners, you don't even know how to relax. You don't even know how to have leisure. You fill even your leisure with troublesome problems. Like crossword puzzles. <laughs> oh, what is it? What is it? This is what we do for fun. Oh, what's the word? What's the word? I'm sure. <laughs> All you have to do is wait, and it will show up tomorrow in the newspaper. Why the agony? Somebody made it. They already had the solution. Just hang in there and wait. Oh, good. <laughs> There's the answer. So that's one approach. All of the sources of suffering come from outside. Drown it out with work, with entertainment, noisier music, elevator music, drugs, cocaine, marijuana, psilocybin. Make it mystical. Uh, psilocybin, what's the other ones? Peyote, that'll do it. Let's give a mystical spin to it. Anything to drown out the noise. And let's come out. Let's get out of here. Until finally, to some extent, to varying extents, we become disillusioned. Because it's just not working that very well. How hard do I need to work? If I work any harder, I think I'm just going to have a heart attack. And it's not working. I'm still not happy. Rich people should be happy. But I'm looking at them. It didn't seem to work out too well. And they can drown out. I mean, they can drown out with really expensive things. And it's not working. And then we come to a place like Phuket and say, okay, let's try plan B. Nothing else worked out. There's nothing else to do. So let's go try meditating for eight weeks. Maybe this will provide some respite from suffering. 
Thank you. Thank you. That was right on cue. Because meditation is peaceful, and it's serene, and it makes you really happy and spiritual. <laughs> What's wrong? I, the meditation isn't working? Um, peaceful, sublime, you feel really spiritual, mystical, and <laughs> it feels like kind of a jacuzzi made of honey. Jacuzzi honey. And then you actually try meditating. It sucks. <laughs> it really, really sucks. It's boring. <laughs> but it's worse than boring. Because then you come inside. Oh, fine, I'm coming within. And you say, oh, crap. <laughs> if I knew what this was in there, I would never have gone there in the first place. <laughs> then it's really hopeless. And then as one person said so charmingly, I just wanted to go out and, you know, here in Phuket, maybe comment just recently. Oh, I had this really bad days. I just wanted to go out and see a movie. You know, the movie that was playing in the home cinema was so bad. <laughs> I needed some other movie. You know, even if it's a crappy movie, at least we know when it starts and ends. <laughs> but when does the OCD movie ever end? It just goes on and on and on. It only ends when you go comatose. When the lights go out, finally, no more movie. And then you wake up, crap, it happened again. Here comes the OZD movie again. And so the Buddhist approach here, to try to wrap this up, is yeah, come in and face the music. Come in and face suffering without mediation, without anesthetic. Just face it, be present with it. See if that OCDD and all the misery, the anxiety, the hope, fear, and all the stuff that it carries, see if that can gradually subside and come on deeper. Get through the initial surf, as if you're a surfer trying to wait to swim out through, paddle out through the heavy surf to get, get a good ride. See if you can get through the heavy waves. The OCD, the waves of memories, emotions, desires, anguish, ups and downs, turbulence, and so forth. See if you can paddle through, paddle through paddle through, until you get at least some moments, some streams of moments where it's quiet. And it's quiet without anesthetic. It's quiet without taking your mind off the suffering. It's quiet because there isn't any suffering, or at least it's much subdued. You say, oh, maybe this is the right direction. Let's follow this. This is looking promising. It may not be blissful, but at least it's not blatant suffering and it's not with an anesthetic, and it's not just by, it's not gained by losing my mind. It's actually maybe a retrieval, a rehabilitation of mind. Let's pursue this one further. And the Buddhist trajectory is, yeah, get through the initial surf, stages one, two, three, four, in shamatha. Get to stage four, you can really be cruising in a place that's quite serene, not ultimate bliss, but it's not much in the way of explicit suffering either. It's pretty calm, with a continuity. Continue going, it looks pretty good. Confidence begins to rise. And then you see, as you're dredging more and more deeply, stuff is coming up, you see, maybe this is meaningful. Maybe this isn't just one more crappy thing happening. Maybe this is part of a healing process. Maybe it's worth bearing. And hang in there, and carry on through. Carry on through the deeper waves, and carry on carry on, come to the substrate consciousness. You'll get glimpses. A number of you have already had glimpses. 
substrate consciousness, moments of bliss, and moments of luminosity, of profound serenity and quiet. See, maybe this is the right track. The scent. You pick up the scent of eudaimonia. Maybe this is worth pursuing. Follow your bliss. Let's follow that to its source. You achieve shamatha. Your mind, the coarse mind, the bed in which all this blatant suffering is just thriving like a can of worms. It's dissolved into still, clear water. Luminous, quiet, blissful. You see, this is real. This was obscured all along, but this is real. This is not a figment. This is not a concoction. This is not some contrivance out of human information. This isn't God and this isn't matter. This is real. This is real. But it's also a withdrawal. We have to come out. Bummer. Okay? We'll come out, eat, go to the toilet, come back down again. And now you've got really two trajectories. You've got two trajectories. The fork in the road is coming pretty quickly here. And that is one trajectory is, I just want out. It's real simple. There's suffering, and there's the causes of suffering, and here's what I want. Out. It's real simple. Can't stand it anymore, and I think I don't need to stand it anymore. And I want out. I want out. I want finished. I don't want to play anymore. Samsara's not fun, disillusioned, no hope for fun. It's not going to happen. I just want out. You go from shamatha, you got your balance, you got your platform, you got enough wisdom to recognize this is not out, this is just time out. The game's not over. You practice vipassana. Gain some direct experiential insight into impermanence. Deeper, more thorough insight into the nature of dukkha, the whole bandwidth. Direct insight into the non-self, not-self nature of body, mind, mental events. Everything that we previously identified as I and mine, you get it. You see there's simply phenomena rising in space. And you go deeper. You probe into, you attend closely to the very nature of these phenomena rising in space. Subjective and objective. You probe deeper. One way or another, there are multiple methods. And then you see something. They're all empty. They're all empty. They're empty appearances. Subjective, objective, and the very bifurcation of subject, object, an appearance, an empty appearance. And the whole phenomenal world and the substrate all dissolve into emptiness. Dissolve into the unconditioned. The substrate was a good facsimile, but it was not the real, the real deal. The substrate dissolves into dhamma-dhatu, dhamma ultimate reality, dhamma-dhatu, the absolute space of phenomena, shunyata, emptiness, nirvana, they're all synonymous. The whole world, subjective and objective, all dissolves. dissolves. Senses would totally withdraw, but withdraw beyond the substrate consciousness. And there's simply an absolutely non-conceptual unmediated, non-dual, immediate experience, realization of nirvana, the nature of which is immutable bliss. Emphasis on immutable, unconditioned. 
and it's radically, absolutely, and irreversibly always and for all eternity, not samsara. And you get your first big dose, like having a good tall, can't say beer, draught of some cool liquid. The word nirvana has a connotation of cooling, cooling, just in contrast to the Buddha's fire sermon, the fire sutta, when he said samsara is a flame, the whole of samsara is a flame from the hell realms to the deva realms. It's all a flame. The whole of samsara is a fire pit, just saturated by dukkha. And then there's the cooling, there's the cool place. And the cooling is nirvana, cool and hot, and you become cool. And that's all there is. And you taste that, unmediated, direct, realized, fusion of shamatha vipassana and nirvana, when you enter the Arya Marga, the path of the Aryas, the noble beings, those who gain direct realization of ultimate reality, which is neither God nor matter. And you see, this is it. You come out of your practice say, that's it. That's it. I'm going to do now whatever it needs, whatever is needed. I'm going to do whatever meditation needed to go there and never come back. Stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, out, game over. You're not hot. All the four measurables are simply to help you get there. They are adjunct to your vipassana, adjunct to your pursuit of nirvana. And you get there. We have many accounts in the Buddha's suttas, in the Pali Canon, of people who got there, some very, very rapidly, breathtaking, others more slowly. Many, many different avenues, many different methods. Then they get there, they become arhats. And they know that any time, at any time, number one, their minds are completely free of mental affliction, but at any time, they go out for alms, they get some food, at any time they can just go right back in. Meditative equipoise, mind immersed in dhammadhatu, nirvana. Immutable bliss, way, way beyond. Inconceivably beyond shamatha. There are accounts, this is not heavily advertised when, when advocates of Theravada Buddhism try to make it popular in the modern world. This is not good advertising. But there are cases, not many, but there are cases, they're documented in the Pali Canon of people achieving Nibbana, becoming Arhats, and then coming out from their realization of Nibbana and see, here I am, I'm getting hungry, I've got a body, it's subject to decaying, old age, death, this is the world of samsara. Who needs this? And they commit suicide. Arhats committing suicide. They say, taking the knife. It's just pain arising in space. Pain, it, the pain itself doesn't have any owner. So it, even that's not painful. It doesn't get to you. Good. Game over. Finished. Samsara. Completely finished. Absolute finished. Why hang around? You know, I did what I needed to do. What do I need to hang around for another 20, 10, 20, 30 years waiting to die? You know. So that's one way game over. That's not exactly good publicity if you're trying to pitch that. But one can understand why. I mean, game over. And then you say, hey folks, um, if you want to do the same thing, here are the suttas. Um, go for it. Out. 
So that is the end of suffering. To think of it in one way, Buddhism, you see a lot of stuff came up from the substrate today, sorry. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But in Buddhism, while it, where, as in contrast to the three Abrahamic religions and scientific materialism, the fourth in the, in the group, they're basically all mutations of the same belief system. Just take out God, put in matter, yeah, pretty much. That's it. The invisible ultimate reality that nobody ever realizes until after you're dead, except for you don't realize it if you're a materialist. Yeah, who cares? Who really cares about having a face-to-face -face immediate realization of matter? What's, where's, the, where's the buzz? You know. So, what's the matter? Nothing. <laughs> <coughs> There's one route. Ah, and what I was going to say, in those four, the four Abrahamic and quasi-Abrahamic religions, salvation comes only after this life, only in the afterlife which in the case of materialism is nothing. In Buddhism, well, you've probably never heard this phrase before, but I think it's defensible. In Buddhism, liberation never comes in the afterlife. Ever. It never does. Because whenever you achieve liberation, it's not in the afterlife. <laughs> it's in this life. This, we're right now in the afterlife. How does it feel? We're all in an afterlife, right? This is after the last one. <laughs> you, know? you have died and gone here. Welcome to Paquette. <laughs> How does it feel? <laughs> Dujum Lingba, the great Dzogchen master, talks about pure lands, pure lands. He's, he's such a wonderful, he cut this very sharp sword. And he said, where do you think the pure lands are? He loves to just slash and burn naive Buddhist mumbo-jumbo. He really does, intense, intense. He said, where do you think these pure lands are? Do you really think that Sukhavati is in the west? How far west? <laughs> west from Tibet? Probably west from, Cal it must be California. <laughs> no, I think maybe Hawaii. Hawaii is west of California, right? But if you go farther west than Hawaii, I think you're in the east. Guam, New Zealand. Where is New Zealand, west or east? It's on the other side of the international works. Maybe Pure Land is, Sukhavati is between New Zealand and Hawaii. Probably, what do you think? Mumbo jumbo. Mumbo jumbo. The notion that any of the Pure Lands is really someplace out there in a direction? I mean, they say so. And Dujum Lingma, I mean, he's hardly going to ridicule Buddhism, but he has no problem ridic ridiculing Naive, simple-minded, blind faith Buddhism. Pure land is where you are. Whether you see it as pure or not, well, that's your problem. Pure land is here. Right. So, beware. Here comes the final point. There's one trajectory, but it really is a trajectory to achieving liberation in this life, whichever one you happen to be in this life, complete, irreversible, total liberation from suffering. As an arhat. But from very early on in the path, they said there was a fork. And there's a fork. It comes right around Shamata, Shamata land. Right around there, there's a fork in the road. 
You can either, and it all depends on motivation. Your motivation is your, your wheel, your steering wheel, the wheel on the ship. It's that which gives you direction. Your motivation is it. Motivation is everything. It can have motivation starting today is a really good idea, but where the rubber really hits the road and it's really going in a different direction, especially around Shamata land. Look for the signs. You've just arrived in Shamata. Next stop, there's a fork in the road. Want to go off to Nirvana? Take a left. You want to go to Buddhahood? Oh, then you better take a right. And this means from that point, I mean really from today, but now the rubber is really hitting the road because you've got a taste. Once you've achieved shamatha, you've got a taste, a real taste, like a bowl full of ice cream in your mouth. I mean, taste, you're really getting it. You've got a taste of the kind of bliss you can have on your own. Disengaged separated, divorced from, withdrawn from everybody else. And you see that your happiness really doesn't depend on having a really nice boyfriend or a girlfriend or the money or the acquisition. It really, really, I mean really, totally, absolutely, you know, for sure, doesn't depend at all on these outside things. That's kind of big to know that beyond any shadow of a doubt that nobody outside can give you anything even remotely as good as what you've got on the inside. Nobody. Not money, not, not for love or money. What you've got inside is better. So that's going to be a big, strong seduction. Just go deeper. Come hither, come hither, come hither, come inside. Come away from samsara. Come away, come away. Go deeper. Come to nirvana. It's going to be the call of the sirens, you know? And leave everybody behind. Let them all work it out for themselves. Write a book. <laughs> Tell them what it was like, you know? Or, from the very beginning, say, look, I've still got a mother. I have parents, got family. I got here because of, well, basically, directly or indirectly, all sentient beings helped me get here. I think I owe them something. And moreover, I think I'm connected with them. I think we're all family here. And I don't think I, my heart sits quite right to have as my ideal to leave them all behind and say, work it out for yourself. Here's my book. Or better yet, just read what the Buddha said. He nailed it. So right from there, I think, okay, my, my path has two aspects here. I definitely, absolutely want to achieve nirvana but I definitely, absolutely want to do everything I possibly can for sentient beings. And neither one of these is more important. Which is more important, wisdom or compassion? Ultimate or relative bodhicitta? Which one's more important? Which arm do you want to cut off? You know? And so now we see that those four measurables were not simply for fuel systems to propel us off to our own nirvana, there were four fuel systems to ignite the great engine of bodhicitta. So we go from there in classic procedure, achieve shamatha, and now develop bodhicitta. Develop bodhicitta. Go beyond the contrived, the manufactured, the developed, the concocted. Cultivate it, cultivate it until it's simply growing on its own, and your mind is bodhicitta. It's uncontrived, spontaneous, it's natural, it's just who your mind is, what your mind is. It's your core, and it's manifesting, and it's growing. 
And as you follow this trajectory, having entered the Mahayana path with shamatha-powered bodhicitta, which means you've brought a serviceable, clear, stable, radically sane mind to the cultivation of bodhicitta, so that as that arises in your mind, it's not torn apart, it's not eroded by the five obscurations. We've all heard it. This precious this precious jewel, bodhicitta. This precious supreme jewel, bodhicitta. Where it has not arisen, may it arise. Where it has arisen, where it has arisen, may it never deteriorate. Or degenerate. But rather may it increase further and further and further, all the way to enlightenment. That's the prayer. How do you do that? Method and wisdom. Achieve your shamatha powered bodhicitta, become a bodhisattva, enter the path. You've now come from the on ramp onto the freeway, the great path. It's a freeway. The great path, the great motorway, the great highway of the bodhisattvas, of the Mahayana. You've entered it. You got, you've, you're no longer on the on-ramp. You're no longer wandering around in one-way streets and congested traffic. You're on the freeway. Congratulations. And now just seal it so you'll never slip off again and go right back into the quagmire where you were before. Seal it with vipassana. Get into the middle lane. Seal it with vipassana. Insight. So that no matter what happens, you will never lose your bodhicitta. And now we see in the anatomy of enlightenment, as laid out in the Abhisama Alankara and many other great treatises, these five paths, these five sequential paths, the ten grounds, and so forth, one sees the anatomy of the process of enlightenment, the evolution, the etiology of enlightenment. And what we see here is this coevolution. This coevolution from the, and to make it simple, there are many, many aspects, and this is where we'll stop, is this coevolution. On the one hand, you're gaining some genuine, deep insight on this second stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation where you seal your bodhicitta so that it's no longer earth-like, it's gold-like. It will never become anything other than bodhicitta. Gold never becomes non-gold in ordinary, in ordinary chemistry. It, it's a keeper. It just remains gold. So from that point on, from the second stage and then on to the third stage and to the path of preparation and so forth, you just see this deepening and broadening, deepening and broadening, deepening and broadening of wisdom. Phenomenological wisdom, ontological insight into emptiness, but it's growing, growing, growing. But the difference, the difference between this and this path of individual liberation is it's growing in this to and fro fashion, this synergistic fashion, with multiple, multiple, multiple levels. I can't even remember how many. How many different is it? How many types of bodhicitta is it? 18? 22. 22. So 22 stages of evolution on the five, five paths, the ten bhumis, 22 stages of a complete unfolding, unfolding, blossoming, blossoming, blossoming of bodhicitta. That doesn't happen on the Shravaka path. Those four measurables will help you get out. In Mayana, the four measurables are to empower 22 stages of evolution of bodhicitta. And they happen if and only if they are developing in this mutually interdependent fashion with deepening insight into emptiness and conventional reality, emptiness, conventional reality. And so the two are playing off of each other as you ascend along these two paths. Ascend along these two paths.
until finally both come to perfection and they become non-dual. Welcome to Buddhahood. Beyond the duality of conventional and ultimate reality. An arhat doesn't mentally suffer at all. Even if a Buddha dies, and the Buddha did die, the arhats, the onlookers, didn't suffer. They just watched. They weren't happy, they weren't dead, they weren't sterile, they weren't aloofly indifferent. They just recognized the inevitable is taking place. And the Buddha is passing away, and they were calm. Right? Even the death of the Buddha. Right? Let alone mom or dad or sisters or your dog. Even a Buddha. Everybody else is wailing, lamenting, could, could hardly stand it. They were so filled with anguish. All his followers around him seeing the light of the world is going out and he'll become a memory for us. Like unbearable anguish. But the arhats, cool as a cucumber, cool as nirvana, just observed. That, is, that which was born perishes. The Buddha's perishing. Had to happen. It's happening now. If they feel no suffering witnessing the passing away of a Buddha, you think they're going to feel any suffering witnessing other people suffering? The answer is no. They don't. They can see a child run over by a horse or an elephant. They don't feel suffering. Does this mean they don't care? No, absolutely not. They're not subhuman. They just don't experience suffering. Do they recognize suffering? the anguish of the mother if her child has just been trampled to death, and so forth. Of course they do. They might even have clairvoyant awareness, knowing the minds of others. They might actually have a direct perception. Ah, this woman is in anguish. This child is in intense pain. They would witness it. They'd witness it. Would they want to alleviate it? Our hearts have different degrees of compassion. They're not all equal in that regard. But the answer is, yeah, overall, sure. Definitely, yes. They just don't suffer. Do they want to alleviate suffering? Sure. They don't suffer themselves. It's somebody else's suffering. Their mind is free. Whereas, I hope this is worthwhile and not just too abstract. Because I knew it would take a while. On this other path, where the four immeasurables are not simply to aid you achieve shamatha, vipassana, and nirvana, where the four immeasurables are equal partners with your vipassana, with your shamatha, equal partners, your shamatha is there to serve the four measurables. And later, your vipassana is there to serve the four measurables. Right. And bodhicitta on the Mahayana path. Frankly, on the Shravagayana path, the four measurables are to serve you, your shamatha vipassana, to help you achieve nirvana. And some, some arhats are tremendously compassionate, some not so much. None of them are mean, but they're not all equally compassionate. It's just, there's no disagreement on this point. But what's it like if the arhat on the arhat trajectory is you're just suffering less and less and less and less and less and zero? So does this mean if you break your leg, you experience no pain? No, you experience pain. But it's just pain arising in space. It has no owner. It doesn't grip you. And there's no suffering in the mind at all. Period. On the bodhisattva path, something subtler is taking place. Something more, more, much more complex. Self-centered suffering. Self-centered mental suffering. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I was hoping for that. It didn't happen. Oh, I'm so disappointed. Blah, 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 blah. Self-centered mental suffering. 
That's going out pretty quickly. Very quickly, actually. Some say even Mahayana path of accumulation. Self-centered mental suffering. I've heard this. The Bodhisattva doesn't experience any self-centered mental suffering anymore. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I wanted that. I'm so pissed. I'm so unhappy. doesn't happen. The Arya Bodhisattva, the Arya Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva who has now gone through many stages of evolution of bodhicitta and has also gained direct unmediated realization of emptiness, experiences no physical pain any more than an arhat, no physical pain that gets to him or her. Pain arises in space, no big deal. That's where the Arya Bodhisattvas can cut off their limbs like a piece of vegetable. No problem. Huh, the close analogy. You're in a lucid dream. Somebody comes to you and says, Oh, Alma, can I have your... I like your, I like your right arm. I really would like your right arm. Can I have your right arm? She said, okay, sure. Give it. Oh, you gave it to me with your left arm, you stinker. That's really disrespectful. I don't want your right arm. You walk away. <laughs> no problem. She grows another one. She's in a lucid dream. She can do what she like. Right? So in a lucid dream, if you're really lucid, you give, a right, give away a right arm, give away a left arm, whatever you like. No problem. It's a dream. So in a similar way, I said an Arya Bodhisattva can cut off limbs and give them away like vegetables. You know, for the carnivorous people around him. But what is distinctive about Mahayana path is not there on the Shravagayana path. Exchange of self for others. Exchange of self for others. A sense of equality, yes. But more than that, the exchange that one actually cares about others more than oneself. And it's just natural, spontaneous, but it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Radical, radical, radical exchange. Until you consider the magnitude of sentient beings, just seven billion human beings on this one little planet, let alone all the animals and other species, non-human, non-animal species that may be here, and that's just on one little planet let alone our nearest neighbor 20 light years away, and so forth and so on, the 100 billion galaxies, let alone all of them, you consider just 7 billion human beings. Let's see, gee, let's get out the scales. Alan Wallace and 7 billion. So the priorities are clear. But this means if you care about others more than yourself, you care about 7 billion people more than you care, 7 billion times as much as you care about yourself. Because really, my well-being is no, important, no more important than Maria's or Glenn's or Joachim's or Jessica's, really. No more important, right? I mean, one more sentient being. So if you care seven billion times as much about all the other human beings on the planet as you do for yourself, you care about them, you identify with them conventionally, then will you be experiencing mental suffering for the suffering of seven billion human beings? let alone the animals and so forth. Are you experiencing mental suffering? How can you not? You don't have that sense of radical division between my suffering and your suffering. You've exchanged yourself for others. You're on the seven billion side. And you're looking back on number one as number, number seven billion plus one. You're looking upon yourself from the outside. And you're experiencing, you're identifying with the seven billion. Will you, experience, will you experience suffering for the seven billion? Yeah. Why is that not absolutely, cataclysmically, 
debilitatingly catastrophic for yourself. That you, who can bear? I mean, a mother knows. A mother knows if her di- child dies, and I know for some of you, at least one here, a child has died. Your own child has died. There's at least one person here, but that's for whom I know that's true. You know the suffering of a parent for one child who dies. Now imagine that taking on that, but now, oh, you got seven billion children. Who can take that on? And not just go into absolute meltdown, like your whole being just collapsed into a black hole of misery. How, how do you do? How do you manage? How are you not absolutely, irreversibly, inconceivably overwhelmed by the suffering of the world? And there's a simple answer. It's wisdom. Because as you're tapping into that, you're tapping into more and more and more and more and more deeply into the immutable bliss of emptiness. You can always tap into substrate consciousness whenever you like, a little time out, but you're going beyond that. You're tapping into the immutable bliss of the realization of emptiness, of nirvana. Beyond space, beyond time. You're tapping into that, and then you come out into the world of exchanging self for others. And the two are deepening each other. Deepening each other. With your deepening insight in the nature of suffering, and your deepening insight into the absolute freedom from suffering. And the two are the two wings with which you're flying to enlightenment. And there's something even beyond that. And this Mayana path, the culmination, is the realization of minepe sangye, Buddhahood that is non-dwelling, that is neither absorbed in nirvana, like an ahat, who has just said goodbye forever, not absorbed in samsara, for which all sentient beings are saying hello forever, neither goodbye nor hello. Non-abiding. Non-dual. Inconceivable. And from the Dzogchen perspective, one looks at that and says, that sounds good, let's take that as the path. Why wait? Three countless answers, a long time to wait to see reality as it really is. The full of it, simultaneously, which an arhat doesn't see. Arhat gets nirvana, no samsara, doesn't see them simultaneously. And Buddha does. Zoshan perspective says that. That's too good to wait for. Too good to wait for. If that's the way things are, let's just go directly there. If there's a dimension of consciousness, that transcends the very duality between samsara and nirvana. And if it's already present, not something waiting for us three countless eons ahead, or in some pure land elsewhere, but if there is a dimension of awareness for which that transcends the very duality that is equally present in samsara and in nirvana, and if it's already present, then why on earth, on heaven or earth, why should we be concerned with anything else? What else is as meaningful, as worthwhile, having as much value 
is that, to realize that dimension of awareness. If it's already present, it's already here, and it's who I already am, then I'm going to take the Delphic Oracle really ser seriously. I'm going to say, hey, my practice is real simple. Know thyself all the way down to the ground. Whereas, as Dingwei Kenzirinbuji said on this path, when you're right on the cusp, just about to realize, moments away from realizing perfect enlightenment, you don't even prefer it. You don't even prefer it. Because you're so resting in, in awareness beyond all duality, so resting, your awareness is the awareness of the one taste of samsara and nirvana. There's no place to go. But of course you just go there anyway. You slide, you slide into enlightenment. You don't have to trudge up the hill. The final is sliding in. Want to end on this note so we still have 24 minutes. <laughs> we'll have no time for question and answer today. I hope this wasn't a waste of time. There are two ways now. Let's come back to today's practice. Some of you are suffering explicitly. Bad things happen to us. People treat us unjustly. They act out of their own delusion. They suffer, and sometimes people want other people to suffer. And when they're aware of some, somebody else suffering that they were able to ignite, they feel a little bit better. It's called vengeance. It's called retaliation. I'm feeling so bad. I'm going to take it out on somebody else. And when I see their suffering, that makes me feel a little bit better. Okay, now I'm a bit relieved. It's almost like I was carrying 10 kilos and I just gave you 5 kilos. Okay, now I don't have to carry 10. People who wait for the execution of people who committed crimes against their own loved ones and so forth. They say, ah, is he dead? Is he dead? He's dead? Ah. Now I suffer less. Some of my burden is gone. He got what was coming to him. They served him justice. Now I suffer less. So people do that. We retaliate, don't we? We want other people to suffer sometimes. So we suffer less. It's like there's just a certain amount, and I can't bury this, so somebody else take this. Anybody. Frankly, really anybody. And that's where just senseless acts of violence come in. It doesn't really matter who, just somebody suffer, and I'll feel a little bit less, because somebody will have taken that burden off of me. In response to the suffering that other people try to give us, the suffering that arises, we have two options today as we cultivate compassion for ourselves and for others. May we be free of suffering. May it not arise. When people try to give us suffering, may they stop. Please stop. You're not a mental affliction, but you're still trying to make me suffer. Please stop. Please don't be so mean, so greedy and manipulative. Please stop. Nobody loses if you stop. Please stop. Let the suffering stop. Pray that it does. It doesn't always, though. But sometimes it can, and we can wish for it, we can aspire for it, for ourselves and others. But our control is very limited. 
our control over other people's behavior, control over our health, natural cataclysms, the events in the world around us. Oh, control is so limited. But there's an inside job, there's an inside track, a lot more potential, a lot more possibility of really bringing something about. And that is suffering arises. Somebody's doing something that's really mean, unjust, harsh. They're doing their best to deliver the goods. I want you to suffer. I'm doing my best, and I'm going to watch to see whether the goods are delivered or not, the bads are delivered or not. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, in terms of what the other person can do. But inside, we can respond without grasping. Whatever comes up, give it your best. If you need to, give it your best shot. But I'm just going to deal with it. Whatever needs to be done, I'm going to do that. But no more. I'm not going to torment myself with this. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm not going to get angry. It just makes me unhappy. I'm just going to give you the minimum. Not you personally. I wish you well. I wish you'd be free of mental afflictions. But in terms of what you're trying to dish out to me, I'm going to give you just what, I'm going to give reality just what it needs. I need to do this, I need to do that. I've done enough, finished. And whatever comes up, let it arise in space with no grasping. Because you don't have to suffer. You may have to respond, right? You may have to respond. We can't always just kind of sit there and smile at people. Sometimes we have to do things that are necessary. But we don't have to suffer. We don't have to grasp onto the feelings, the OCDD that arises. We can just let it arise in space and dissolve back into space. We don't have to suffer. So take your freedom in both hands. Okay? Good. Let's practice. Withdraw your awareness from all appearances outside your body. From the world around you, siphon your awareness in. Draw it into the space of the body, into this quiet, non-conceptual space, and settle your body in its natural state as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm.
and soothe this troubled mind, settling with the qualities of ease, stillness, and clarity, your own birthright, with mindfulness of breathing. And now attend closely to something that is already present in addition to your breath, and that is the impulse of caring. You care about your own happiness and pain. Unleash it, this impulse of caring, 
focusing perhaps on what we care most about, our wish to be free of pain, suffering, fear, anguish, anxiety. I wish to be free of the whole, the whole bandwidth of dukkha. Again, like a sonic boom, let's begin in the center. Begin where you are. The suffering and pain, the physical and mental that you experience, that is your burden, that assaults you, whether seemingly coming from outside or inside, Bring to mind the blatant suffering that is your burden. Individually, uniquely yours. Let loose this natural impulse, the wish to be free. With every outbreath, arouse the yearning, may I be free, of suffering and the causes of blatant suffering. Bring to this the eye of wisdom, that indeed you may be free by the catalysts of suffering subsiding. May it be so. But whether or not it is so, you may release grasping and be free nonetheless despite your lack of control over the objective world. With each in-breath arouse the yearning, may I be free of blatant suffering and its causes, and imagine the darkness of such suffering being drawn into the light of your heart and being extinguished there without trace.
one way or another, whether from, whether from the catalyst of suffering or from the grasping that allows the suffering to get us in its grip. Imagine being free. And let your attention rove outside your own skin, outside your own immediate experience of perceptual reality, your perceptual reality. Let your attention rove to others who, like you, experience suffering blatantly in body and mind wish like you to be free. Let your attention rove and practice as before with the aspiration may you, like myself, be free of suffering and its causes. With each in-breath, imagine them becoming free, one way or another, from the outside or from the inside. Freedom.
expand the field above and below to all the sides, human and non-human, as sentient beings, as sentient beings, this is what we all share, suffering and the wish to be free. And we're all of the same family. imagined it to be so. Why couldn't it be so? Why couldn't we all be free of blatant suffering? It's so close. Every sentient being has a substrate consciousness, at least a respite, a time out from blatant suffering. Why couldn't every sentient being be at least for a while free of blatant suffering, since that dimension of freedom already lies within. May it be so. May I make it so. May I receive the blessings to enable me to make it so. Release all these fabrications of the mind and release all dualistic aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature.
Tommaso. Let's not keep our cooks waiting any longer. They may be getting worried. We don't want them to suffer. So out of compassion, let's go eat. <laughs>